Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I've got Cassandra Austin. Now, have you ever been to Cooper Pedy? I have. Oh, very Which, out back. Above or below? Oh, well, opens were discovered, opals were discovered there over 100 years ago and people live in dugouts under the ground because of the intense heat. The weirdness of the landscape is described in All Fall Down by Cassandra Austin. Well, welcome, Cassandra. Thank you. And it is a weird landscape there. It is. It's a moonscape in a way. But your story isn't set in Cooper Pedy. No, it's set in Mullaluk, which is a fictional town about an hour south of Cooper Pedy. And Mullaluk, perhaps not only the landscape is weird, what happens when you visit somebody in Mullaluk? Well, you arrive on the train on a tiny platform and it's only one tra- set of train tracks. So the train travels from Adelaide all the way up to Darwin, takes four, four days, and then that same train shuttles back down again. So you have to wait. Oh, I know. And this is where poor teenager Rachel arrives in the dead of night. And no one to pick her up. No one to pick her up. Oh, it is weird as. And when? When you come to somebody's house, are you invited in? No, not in Millerlook. You have to stand on the porch or the veranda and you can make conversation that way. No one's allowed inside anyone else's house. Yeah, look, it's... Uh, <laughs> there's a quote by Shane. People run to Millerlook to get away from what they, are, what, what they are somewhere else. We don't want that coming inside our houses. Oh, dear, dear, dear. It's a strange privacy. Are people hiding away or being hidden away? Mm. So we've got Rachel in the dead of night waiting on that um, uh, station platform and Gussie finally turns up. How would you describe Gussie? Gussie's gorgeous. She wears big floral dresses because she's a big floral woman and she's... Tough as nails, but she's got a heart of gold, Gussie. And a bit of a gossip too, isn't she? A little bit. Yeah, that's true. Instead of taking Rachel straight to her uncle's, she asks Rachel to go down the chasm and look for evidence of the bridge being sabotaged. What does Rachel find down there? She finds a footprint. Mm. So, which leads Gussie <laughs> to playing Cinderella with a book shape all around Mullaluk. Yeah. yeah. Now, we've got Janine in hospital. Mm. And husband Craig, if I found out who you were leaving me and the baby for, I'll kill him. Why is Janine in hospital? She was on the bridge when it collapsed, so she oh. unfortunately fell. In her car, down. Well, we know who Janine might have been leaving her husband for. It's Janine's most regular visitor, Shane. But Shane, well, let's hear a little bit about Shane from page 17. Shane forces himself to sit guard, one leg pumping, caught in the void. There is no time in here. Time is for outside this hospital room where unpaid bills and grocery shopping suddenly make demands. In here, all he has to do is figure out how to leave his heart behind and then get on in the world without it. 
leave his heart behind. Well, it was Janine who was crossing the bridge to him and she, he, he doesn't know why she was coming, whether it was to tell him that she was going to be with him or not. And she's in a coma. She's not talking. But there's somebody else in that hospital room the whole time, the four <laughs> weeks of Janine's coma. Who was that? It's Richard, and he's understood in the town to be an insurance investigator. And, well, the town has got together and built a new bridge, or rebuilt the bridge, but it can't be opened. They can't use it. Because Richard has the say. Richard needs to know why the old one fell down before the new one can be used. Well, Rachel's uncle Frank, that's who she's come to stay with, he prays for Rachel. What's his job? He's a local Franciscan priest. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> he gets around town trying to pray for everybody. And how long has he been praying for people in Malook? Uh, he's been there 30 years, I think. Yeah. But it's Charlie who comes in to the hospital room. And when he comes in, Janine rouses from her coma. Now, we met Charlie earlier in the book before he had this magical act. He was an alcoholic and he was out in the desert burying something. What was he burying? A bag of knives, his friends. A bag of knives. But there was one he kept. What was that? The silver stag, a bowie knife. And from Cassandra Austin's book, All Fall Down, we're going to hear a little bit more about Charlie and that knife. He grips the silver stag, his only friend in this terrible moment, can hear the land singing up the need, the sighing moans rising through the old mining shafts to a horrible pitch. Nature knows what is coming, demands it and yet is afraid of what it demands, hungers and yet sickens at its hunger. So the earth pitches and the air heaves and the sun shakes and hides its face but the blood will soak down to greedy roots, spreading itself into the heart of the soil, leaving only its colour behind as a reminder. The terrible need cannot be denied. It is always the same way. So <laughs> it is the weirdest thing. What, what does Charlie think that the new bridge needs? He subscribes to a fairly archaic idea, which is that bridges require a human sacrifice in order to stand. <laughs> which brings us to a dinner party from hell. <laughs> a mixture of people. This is Gussie's. She's organised it for her birthday. There's drink and too much for it for um, poor Frank, the Franciscan monk. And what was the main conversation? It tended to be around... Sacrifice. Oh, Father Frank knows about Charlie's idea, and this is a quote from the book. There can't be many priests around the world faced with the need to re-eradicate notions of human sacrifice. Yet Frank has watched the seed of thought grow in one panicked man's heart and carry on the winds to germinate in the soil of many troubled minds. So this whole idea about human sacrifice is is getting volume. Starts to percolate up through the town. Yeah, yeah and Gussie uh, helps with it. 
Well, they're so, getting desperate. Well, they're getting different. And, and Richard is also at this dinner party. And what, what's his belief on religion? Well, he thinks it's a load of nonsense. He quotes, quotes Pascal's wager and uh, many other things and calls priest failed insurance salesman. Now, to give you a, a little insight, I've asked Cassandra Austin to read just a little bit of three-way dialogue <laughs> between three men. So we'll see how she goes. Charlie says, a sacrifice is an act of God. It's the act of delusional man, snaps father. Richard spreads his arms, amused. Your whole religion is based on it, on the resurrection. And what's that but sacrifice? You haven't got a leg to stand on. You're in the business of sacrifice. Father abruptly stands, fists by his side. It was a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Richard grins. Then it didn't work. He turns to look at Charlie, and no one pays out on it. The gods do, says Charlie quietly. Oh, for goodness sake, yells Father Not. I can't stand much more of this. Between the godless and the idolaters, I don't know which is worse. Oh, that dinner party to be part of. And all the crockery and glassware get thrown in the end. <laughs> so we don't know why. Well, you will have to read the book to find out. So we're coming to the climax. What's Father Frank organising? He's organised the choir to engage in a protest march, hoping that the government will see it and feel for the town of Mullaluk and open the bridge. So this is activity, um, an act of civil disobedience above the bridge, and there's activity down below the bridge. And then Cassandra Austin has given us an environmental impact on the scene. A dust that? storm. The dust yeah. storm. Rolls in. Ah. So, you know, not that. We've got the dynamiting in the opal mine, the matches wedged in cracks of the dugout ceiling to check whether there's earthquakes. And what's this with the dingoes? Do they really go around capturing other dogs? Yes, they do. They can. And they do in this book. They certainly do. Poor so moustache. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, Rachel comes with her greyhound dog, Moustache, who just oh, gets to... Anyway, it's all part of the climax. And then there's Charlie hurting Gussie, telling her that she's just a distraction. So who is she writing the love letter for? Oh, oh. she's writing a love letter on behalf of Shane, in a way. Trying oh, don't, to... Don't oh, tell. sorry. Don't tell. I just thought that <laughs> was tell. lovely because... It, it all fitted in beautifully. Look, this was incredible characters showing broken relationships as well as a broken bridge in the heat, the red dirt of outback Australia. Cassandra, Austin, it's a ripper. It's a ripper yarn. Thank you. Where did you, you enjoy all these characters? <laughs> you know, I think they're all part of me. Really? Mm. Mm. The priest, the elderly woman, the young teenage girl. Yeah, I think there's they're all me in a way. And the centering of this book in Mullaluk. Have you been there? You know, I have to confess I haven't been there, but it's oh, a dream of mine. It feels like it. You know, you can sort of see this 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 chasm which connects both sides of Mullaluk, and if it's not there it takes 4 hours to get around to the other side. Yeah. And and but this big bridge to be on the bridge at night with the stars out. 
It would be pretty magical. Yeah, beautiful. I yeah. So, Cassandra, is this your first book? I have a novella, Seeing George, some years ago, but this is my first, yeah, piece of serious fiction. You got it to um, Penguin Random House, and uh, with a with an agent? No, not with an agent. No. Just managed to get it to the slush bar. Yeah, it was picked well, up through the slush. No. Well, it was no, it was handed on by Anthony Yark, a oh. professor, yep. creative writing. Yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 particularly good. In fact, you thank him in uh, the acknowledgement. I do. Yeah, he was instrumental. He was terrific. Okay, so what what about your writing background then? Well, really, my background's in criminology and film. So writing something I always wanted to do and it was only really when I moved to Los Angeles, met my husband and moved to Los Angeles, that I was able to do it. So oh, wow. It's a bit of a dream career for me. Now I'm going to just flick over here because we've got a segue. When our two authors this morning were out <laughs> before we came on air, Cassandra said, oh, I know you. I know you. So let's flick over. Well, speaking of you, I've got Ooyang Yu. Ooyang so, and in fact, the Australian setting is uh, particularly apropos. Australia's view of its past and traditions is often stereotypical, things like Gallipoli and mateship. But my author today, Yang Yu, provides us with an alternative perspective in many ways of Australia <laughs> in his novel, Billy Singh. So, Yang, welcome back to 3CR. Yeah. Hi, David. I'm going to move that microphone a little closer to you. Yeah. Who is Billy Singh? Well, he's uh, a very famous um, sniper in the First World War. So he actually existed? Yeah, he did. He he's did. a real person. He's a real person. Right. And yet you fictionalised his uh, life story in some ways. Co correct, yeah. Ah. But um, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, in fact, uh, in terms of his character and nature, Dad said to me, you were born of two truly incompatible cultures and languages, as incompatible as fire and water. But you live to forget that, which is a good thing. When I went droving, the others never stopped for one moment laughing at me for my own peculiar accent and calling me Chow or Charlie. I, unlike the rest of them, didn't get upset. Instead, I started calling them names just for fun in retaliation. So you've actually taken on board this notion of the Chinese in Australia which is something we've often neglected in the way we view our culture. Is it of particular... Well, it is of particular interest to you in many ways. It's uh, actually... I think this uh, goes back uh, to about two decades ago when I first arrived in Australia in 1991. I uh, was working on my PhD thesis. I picked up uh, uh, the literary representations of Chinese particularly in fiction, and there's a lot of stuff uh, right to the beginning uh, in novels and short stories where Chinese somehow find their existence and uh, even take that uh, snippet of uh, uh, his father. Mm. There's, there's anecdotes and uh, stories in the old fictions written by Australians about Chinese where the Chinese gold diggers and drovers, they get uh, laughed at for that kind of thing. So it's all in my memory. Because from a, well, 
um, a Eurocentric perspective, you know, we look at Gallipoli and, as you say, Billy Singh was a sniper, but yeah. we don't necessarily see, uh, or in our mind's eye, um, the role that the Chinese played here. Uh, There's quite a number of uh, uh, Australian Chinese uh, uh, snipers or soldiers who were there uh, in the Gallipoli in the old days. Uh, there's another Salib uh, something, you know, I, I forget the name, but uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of them. And this, um, likewise, there were many originals, soldiers there too, and soldiers of mixed blood. So it's something that um, we may not have uh, paid as much attention as we should. Yes. But they exist, and they exist and catch my attention because I... Again, you know, uh, feel like a stranger in this country even after 20 odd years. Well, this makes for uh, an interesting comment that you have <laughs> in um, the sort of prologue. Um, you mention you're living in many ways in another existence mm. um, and you're telling your own life mm -hmm. through what Billy goes through. In a way, yes. So some of the things that, that Billy encounters... Um, include things like the racism that we see. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the opening of the novel is um, <laughs> one I can't read out for all the expletives there, um, but the sort of insults we used to, well, in some cases still hurl. Mm -hmm. It's still an issue yeah. in our society today. But if we look at um, the sort of attitudes in uh, schools, um, and if I can find... In class, Mark initiated a topic on Australia's future as part of the arts subject, and he introduced it by inviting the students to comment. One said, I think we're part of the British Empire and should remain so forever. He got five out of five. Another said, it should be a eugenic one in which all the lesser beings are removed, such as the Chinamen and the Abos. He got five out of five. Still another one said, Mother England is a sovereign state that consists of only four islands, but we shall join them by becoming their fifth island and the largest. He got ten out of five because Mark liked the ingenuity of his thinking so much that he would have loved to instantly upgrade the system to ten, but for the existing five-point system. A girl said, Australia's future is bound to be white, as white as a snowball, never to be tarnished by any colour, black, brown, yellow or white. Oops, I'm sorry, I meant the other three colours, not white, as white is not a colour. She was cut short by Mark, who said, yes, it is a colour, but one that is so supreme that it overrides all the other colours. I can only give you four out of five, but I'll give you five if you do well next time. When it came my turn to answer, I simply said, I don't know. I got zero out of five because... Mark hated my guts for it. <laughs> I mean, these attitudes that you, you've sort of documented them all there in the attitudes of the children, part of the empire, a eugenic perspective. Have we progressed as Australians since oh, then, do you think? A tough question. <laughs> tough question. Well, I mean, uh, they're showing this uh, on SBS uh, documentary recently yeah. about the... Uh, I'm not sure about the title, whether are we still racist or something like mm, that? Mm, yeah, and mm. they uh, they get uh, black people and uh, Arabic uh, women standing uh, on the street or going through the streets, encountering strangers and getting their responses. They are very extreme attitudes, but I think on the on the main, we have definitely uh, advanced from those, uh, that's a hundred years ago. Yeah. And uh, when I was talking about that um, uh, 
uh, that class. Actually, I had in mind、um, a picture that in my research on my PhD, it was a picture that represents Australia、uh, tied up by、um, Python, which is Aboriginal, and、uh, with the caption that, to the effect that uh, uh, the country will die in 50 years or something if that we don't do anything about it. So in those days, the color issue was very strong in everyone's mind.、Mm. Yeah, so that was,、uh, yeah. But you actually provide an alternative picture. Billy Singh is talking to an Aboriginal mate of his, Spark, and he says, "One dream he told me about was one in which he became the king of a country where people were all of mixed blood, so mixed they couldn't tell each other apart, <laughs> and had lost memory of who descended from whom." <laughs> But you don't need that dream," said I. "We already are a mixed people." He stared at me in disbelief. His flat nose, bigger than mine, wrinkled, and his mouth, bigger than mine too, widened in a questioning manner. "Well, I mean," said I, "nothing is pure in this country, mate." You know that white is a cloud that turns dark as soon as it is threatened with rain or at the approach of night. Black is always good company for sleep and love, although I have never experienced what it is like. Yellow is the same with gold or golden. It is the life of sun, the energy-giving sun. You can't deny that. When these three and other colours are mixed, we have the whole world right in front of us: the flowers, the waterhole. Water, the gum trees, the sky behind them, the birds—nothing can be one colour only. Perhaps death is. Yeah.、Uh, when you say、uh, when you said、uh, use the word alternative, I kind of、uh, um, don't quite agree because I mean, if you use the alternative, then I have been living in in this country alternatively for the last twenty odd years because I'm a stranger. Everything I do must be alternative. No, it's it's part of our, my life. It's part of his and、uh, and that Aboriginal boy's life that I imagine. And、uh, I guess、uh, the part that you chose、uh, to read, I think、uh, that reflects my uh, philosophical uh, thinking on the color issue, and somehow、uh, expressed by、uh, Billy and、uh, the Aboriginal boy. And we need a more comprehensive philosophy to yeah, account are, for. Yeah, we are a universe in which all kinds of people of all kinds of colors live and share their life, and I mean to use that word again, alternative. What people may be living their alternative existence to ours because we don't know much about it. We still don't mix with them much, and we hardly ever. Uh, experience their kind of lifestyles because we live the way we live. When we say we, then it immediately、uh, sounds like them and us. But it's it's like that in Australia.、Mm. And and Australia, the barriers are slowly merging to a certain extent. There is resistance in some、mm-hmm. areas. Yeah.、Um, but we have, in fact, benefited. Uh, from well, a multicultural environment. Very much so. Yes, I do agree. Yeah. But it has its own challenges. Always. This, always. This、yeah. gets me on to、um, your style of writing, which is absolutely fascinating. Because I mean, part of what I've just read out、um, that those images of colour and seeing it in a different way.、Um, you've also used. This image of death all the way through,、mm. um, as a metaphor for life 
in some ways. Mm. Um, you see yourself in the character of Billy Singh and tell your contemporary story through someone who is now departed. Um, Billy is looking at this whole notion of life and death all the way through. Mm -hmm. And Billy is also dead, um, <laughs> as in as the narrator of yeah. this story. Right. Um, so he's telling it almost as a dead man reflecting on what he's been through. Or dead man resurrected through a living being, right. telling his own story. And so life is perpetuated. Life uh, never stops. Death is another kind of life. Mm. The other image that goes all the way through is this notion of guns and bullets, mm -hmm. uh, which um, can be uh, quite... Um, well, confronting in a way, um, I buried myself in her warm wetness. The air we breathed was urgently exchanged. She opened up like nothing I could use for description. Two bodies impinging upon one another, two worlds of unphilosophies and two bullets, my own, coming to meet across the continents, now resting at the end of each other's trajectories, exploding, imploding, with the night aiding and abetting us. There was nothing more I wanted. All I ever wanted was here and now. People are bullets? <laughs> what, what do you mean by that image? Or what uh, I don't mean anything. It's, uh, it's poetry. It's poetry. Uh, it's poetry happening. It's poetry at work in love. And it's whatever uh, you interpret, interpret as it is. Yeah, yeah. Each and every one of the readers are welcome to interpret the, the way they want to. And um, yeah, that's that's my idea of writing, combining the real, the imaginary, the philosophical, and the poetic, all in one. Which basically in sums the imagery. Up, yeah, which basically sums up how this book is written. Um, you've had a lot of wordplay as well. The uh, teacher's name Mark. Uh, Billy wants to become a marksman. Uh, <laughs> Mark, and then you quote John Dunn, Mark, but that flea is this poem about Mark. Um, and um, mark my words and phrases like this. So yeah. you're playing with language quite a, quite a lot, yeah. And and also uh, you, I might I might point out that the the shortness of the book. Because in the past, my books uh, tended to be quite lengthy, sometimes 400 pages or 500 pages. My third novel was about 700 pages. But uh, when it came to this book, and actually uh, another book before this, I sort of set a rule for myself. I don't want to go beyond 50,000 K. I just want a complete story, like a short poem. So that, in a way, is uh, is uh, a representation of that idea in the book, short and poetic. And poetic. And the yeah. other thing you've done is you've actually paralleled the European view and the Chinese view because you've got uh, the father figure mm -hmm. telling traditional tales from China but then also references to... Uh, his mother's world, which is more from English literature. So, as I said, John Donne. But you also then get out Tristram Shandy, which is an eccentric novel, and two of the chapters are blank pages, Correct. for example. Correct. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's like two hemispheres uh, coexisting in, in the body of Billy Singh. Uh, it is shaped like a bullet, a bullet of love, a bullet of death. 
a bullet but poetry. And the difficulty then and the challenge of reconciling those <laughs> two hemispheres, is that possible or are they always going to be in friction? Uh, it is quite possible from my own experience because I've been writing uh, poetry, fiction, non-fiction, critic, uh, literary criticism and translating in both languages, constantly crossing the borders, constantly negotiating. So do you write in Chinese? I, I write in both. You write in both? Right. What's the difference? Is there a... a There's huge differences. In huge. terms of a mental leap that you'd have to go through? Yeah, well... Uh, uh, there's too many uh, differences to talk about in such a short period of time, but just to give you one uh, example, uh, there's a lot of things that are, are quite tried in Chinese. For example, you talk about the palm of your hand, right? In Chinese, it's literally hand heart, the heart of one's hand, meaning the palm. So when I do translation of poetry into English, instead of translating as the palm, I render that as the heart of my hand. But that all of a sudden raises lots of poetic potential. Exactly. That raised the level of poetry. Yeah. In another language. Well, I, I just had an image of someone being slapped across the face. But if you're <laughs> being slapped across the face by somebody's uh, heart, heart of it, it changes its meaning. Exactly. <laughs> well, if you're slapped across the face in your house in Maluluk, nobody would know because nobody can go in to, through the door. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Well, here we are. Fascinating. Well, um... We'll have to uh, bring Publish or Not to a close. Ruminations is coming, coming up. In. But I was speaking with Cassandra Austin about her book, All Fall Down, published at Penguin Random House. And I was talking to Ouyang Yu about his novel, Billy Singh, which is from Transit Lounge. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank for you. listening.